0: This episode of Christmas Past is the first in a three part series about Santa Claus. And even though children love Santa, these episodes are not for them. Grown ups, please enjoy them on your own. Thanks. Let's try a little thought experiment Imagine a room full of people. It's a good mix of male and female, young and old, from all over the world, and all walks of life. And your job is to give each of them a sheet of paper and a box of crayons. And you're going to ask them to perform one simple task, and that is to draw a picture of Santa Claus. When everyone's finished and hands you their drawings, how much variation do you think you'd see? I don't mean variation in artistic ability, I mean variation in what people think Santa looks like. I'd bet good money that almost every picture would depict an old man. He'd have a white beard, a red fur suit with white trim, a red hat with a pom-pom on the end and black boots and a black belt at the waist. In other words, the image of Santa is pretty universal and standardized. The only things that change are the small details, like whether he wears glasses or smokes a pipe. He is, without a doubt, one of the most recognized and recognizable figures in the world. But this universal image of a grandfatherly gift-giver, dressed in red and riding a magic sleigh, that's all relatively new. It takes up only about 10% of the total history of his legend. So how exactly did Saint Nicholas become Santa Claus? Or Kris Kringle? And why does he have so many names anyway? Well, that's a story 1700 years in the making and one that may not be finished yet. A story I'll tell here in three acts. It's a blurry mixture of fact and legend, a tale of miracles and murder, of tomb raiders and torture, of the Protestant Reformation, poetic license, media proliferation, corporate branding, and Dutch people smoking pipes. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Act 1, The Life and Legend of St. Nicholas. Let's start with the basics. St. Nicholas was a real person, and he's recognized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Beyond that, there's not much we can say for sure.
1: Yeah, the first thing to say is that it's really hard to tell what's historical and what's legend.
0: Bruce David Forbes is a professor of religious studies at Morningside College in Sioux City, Iowa, and he's the author of the book Christmas, A Candid History.
1: I mean, what we really know historically is the century, uh, meaning the 300s, that he lived in what's now Turkey, and that apparently he became a bishop. And then there are a lot of other standard things that are said about his story, but uh, it's just unclear how much of it is historical and how much is legend. It is said that he attended the Nicene Council, the Council of Nicaea, which in the history of Christianity is one of the most important councils, but we really don't know if it happened.
0: The First Nicene Council was when the Emperor Constantine called a conference of all the bishops to resolve important points on theological questions. And one of the legends within a legend has it that at the council, one of the other attendees, a man named Arius, got into a heated argument with Nicholas. Arius promoted an idea that others considered heretical. It angered Nicholas so much that he punched Arius out, right there on the floor of the council, with Emperor Constantine watching. Apparently, he had to spend the night in jail as a result. Now remember, this is a guy who knows if you've been naughty or nice. Constantine was the first Christian Roman emperor. The rulers who came before him ordered for the persecution of Christians. And several accounts say that Nicholas was imprisoned and tortured during that time, maybe for as long as three years. Another part of his legend is that he was born to wealthy parents who died from the plague when he was young.
1: He was the only child of a wealthy family, and one of his pledges to himself was to give away all his money uh, before he died. There are lots of great legends, but the one most common is a good symbol of what he came to represent, and that is the story of uh, really a widowed father who had three daughters, and he tells them in tears that because he has no money, he can't provide dowries for them to get married. They probably will not be able to get married. So they they faced a future of slavery or worse, and Saint Nicholas overhears this, and. So, in the dead of night, comes by one night and drops a bag of gold through the window, which allows one daughter to have a dowry. She can get married. Another night, another bag of gold.
0: On the third night, the father waits up to see who's been dropping gold into the house. He discovers Nicholas, but Nicholas swears the father to secrecy, saying that all the credit should go to God and not him. By the way, there are later revisions of this story that say he threw the money down the chimney. But this is impossible, because houses didn't have chimneys back then. And another variation has the money landing in a stocking that was hanging out to dry. Sound familiar? Let's take a step back. These days, we associate St. Nicholas mainly with his generosity. But as Professor Forbes tells it, there are three distinct roles that he's played.
1: One is that he's a protector, kind of a guardian angel. Second, he becomes a disciplinarian trying to find out if children are naughty or nice. And third, he's a generous gift giver. And I think those three aspects are, are involved all the way through this history, from the beginnings of Saint Nicholas to the present. But I think the emphasis changes. And the early part, I think, emphasized of Nicholas as a guardian, protecting people.
0: This reputation as a sort of guardian angel and miracle worker is part of how his popularity spread from Eastern to Western Europe. He became the patron saint of seafarers, and there are legends of him rescuing doomed ships and bringing drowned sailors back to life. He was also the patron saint of merchants, archers, brewers, pawnbrokers, and travelers. And there's one story about his protection over travelers that sounds like something right out of Grimm's fairy tales.
1: Yes, it's not as sweet a story as the other one because it's kind of grotesque, yes. But uh, apparently three boys who are sent by their father to get a blessing from Nicholas... A horrible innkeeper hears that they have money, kills them in its grotesque, most grotesque form, cuts them up, puts them in a salt tub for the curing of meat. Saint Nicholas learns about what's happened, comes to confront the innkeeper. Um, yeah, The most horrible part of the, some stories is that the innkeeper even tries to serve this meat to Nicholas, but Nicholas finds out what happens, confronts the innkeeper, calls him to repent, miraculously heals the boys and in fact, in some versions, uh, not only brings them back to life and brings them whole, but with their clothing and the money and everything intact.
0: Believe me, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are stories of him multiplying stockpiles of grain during a famine, fighting to lower taxes, rescuing condemned men seconds before being beheaded, single-handedly destroying the temple of Artemis. It goes on and on and on. It's believed that he died on December 6th, in the year 343. He was 73 years old. And so December 6th eventually became St. Nicholas Day. In the years after his death, his legend and popularity spread and grew across Europe. He became so popular that more than seven centuries later, some Italian merchants got a wild and crazy idea. Now, just to be clear, this one is not a legend. This really happened.
1: Someone ought to make a movie about this because it's exciting in its own way. More or less, you had an Italian community that uh, was on hard times and it's like the community council trying to figure out what can we do to improve our status. And they really needed something that would draw people to the town. But what they needed was a, a, a tourist attraction. And in those days, tourist attractions were usually religious. If you had relics of a saint, and people would make pilgrimages there. Uh, You could get all kinds of incomes from those that visit. And Bari decided, we need relics of a saint.
0: The year was 1087. One group of merchants from the town of Bari and another from Venice apparently got the same idea at the same time, and the race was on. Which group could make it to Turkey first to steal the bones of St. Nicholas? Well, the group from Bari got there first, and they brought the bones back and built a basilica around it. It's still there today.
1: And it was very successful because it was a port city. And this is about the time when the Crusades are going to start. And so Crusaders from all over Western Europe would come down to Italy, usually get on a boat to go to the Holy Land and fight. And Bari was the perfect place, so they would go there, ask for a blessing of St. Nicholas, and then go off in their crusading fighting. Um, It was a very successful venture.
0: Around the beginning of the 12th century, St. Nicholas is more popular and well-known than ever. But at this point, he still has no association with the Christmas celebration, and he's still a far cry from becoming Santa Claus. But all of that is about to change. I hope you will join me for Act Two of our story, when we'll see St. Nicholas celebrations and traditions starting to take shape, how a variety of cultures add their own touch to the legend, and how St. Nicholas and his helpers make sure the children keep their behavior on the up-and-up. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Hey, this was the first official episode of Christmas Past, so I want to thank you, really and truly, for taking the time to listen and taking a chance on a new podcast. I've been working on these episodes since the summer, and I'm really excited that it's finally time to share them with you. If you like what you've heard so far, then I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or whatever app or service you use to get your podcasts. And if you like Christmas Past, then you should really check out the Christmas Stocking podcast if you haven't already. It's also on iTunes and everywhere else. It's one of my favorites, and it was really the main inspiration for Christmas Past. And I'd like to thank the host, Lee Cameron. He was very generous to me with his help and encouragement as I was getting this podcast off the ground. Thank you, Lee, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. And I'd also like to thank Bruce David Forbes. He's a great guy, and I really enjoyed the time we spent together doing the interview for this show. You'll hear more from him in the next two episodes. And also, starting in the next episode, I'll be sharing your Christmas memories. So if you have any stories or even just memories about your favorite holiday traditions, I'd love to share them right here on the show. So just record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Try to keep it to about a minute or so, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, sharing all kinds of fun vintage Christmas stuff and Christmas trivia almost every day. Come on by and give me a like or a follow, or just say hi and join the conversation. Search for Christmas Past Podcast in all three places, and you'll find me. And if you come to christmaspastpodcast.com, you'll find show notes for each episode. They include pictures, recipes, references, and info about the music you hear on the show. All that good stuff. Again, that's christmaspasspodcast.com.